Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Welcome to another episode of Arabiyat with Linda and Sureya. And I'm Sureya. Linda's out on vacation in Mexico, getting a tan by the beach and drinking some piña coladas with her fiancé. So we've got a really special episode for you guys. Back in March, Linda interviewed Kuwaiti author Mayan Nakib about her collection of fiction stories called The Hidden Light of Objects. It was originally aired on KPFA's Upfront, and it was a great conversation about literature and literary culture in the Arab world and the power of imagination to heal and make change. So take it away, Linda. Images of Arabs as terrorists, victims of war, and oppressed people has too long dominated the American media and psyche. A new collection of short fiction by Kuwaiti author Mayel Nakib challenges these tired stereotypes. In her stories, she reveals the complexities of life in the Middle East. The book is called The Hidden Light of Objects. And here with me in studio is the book's author, Mayel Nakib. She was born in Kuwait in the 1970s. Later, she received a PhD in comparative literature at Brown University. Today, she teaches post-colonial studies and comparative literature at the University of Kuwait. The Hidden Light of Object is her first collection of stories. May, thanks for coming in. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Tell me, why did you write this book? Why short stories? So I turned to fiction rather late. It was, you know, after I started teaching at Kuwait University, I had been writing academic articles mainly on cultural politics in the Middle East. I turned to fiction because I felt this was around 2006, 2007, post 9-11, obviously over a decade after the invasion of Kuwait. It just felt to me like fiction offered the kind of flexibility I was looking for to try to capture something about the Middle East, something that was being left out of the grander narratives that we were seeing on television, but also the kind of life that we were experiencing in the Middle East itself. So things felt like they were closing in, and it felt almost like people were forgetting the kind of life that in the Middle East that I had grown up in, you know, a very open, much more tolerant very cosmopolitan experience. That's that's the kind of, you know, Kuwait and Middle East that I grew up in. And I couldn't see that anywhere around me. And I couldn't see it in the images of the Middle East that were being depicted in media representations in the West. So I, I kind of turned to fiction out of frustration that I wanted a, a, a form, you know, and, and of course, I'd been involved in literature and fiction my whole life. And so it seemed to me the best form to kind of do the things I wanted to do, to kind of remember in a certain way, um, in a way that I wasn't able to do exactly in uh, in academic writing. So that's why I chose to write short stories. So tell me more about the Middle East that you grew up in. What was it like and what changed? Sure. So I I was born in Kuwait in 1970. So I'm going to give my, give my age away. And I was very young when my parents left Kuwait. We lived in uh, a, a brief time in the UK and then in the US for the first six years. I came back to Kuwait in 1976. So my, the reason my parents left uh, Kuwait at that time was because like many of their generation, they were going abroad to gain expertise to come back to help develop their young nation state. Kuwait had only been, um, independent for about nine years by 
by then. So Kuwait gained its independence in 1961. And so, you know, that generation were extremely excited to go get educated, come back. And the kind of Kuwait that I grew up in, in the 1970s into the 80s and came of age in, was a Kuwait that was extremely cosmopolitan. There were people from all over the world present. Um, it was generally very tolerant and open, a, homo- a heterogeneous country and, and place. And, you know, the kind of um, more conservative and traditional, you know, uh, uh, the kind of life that we sort of see and associate now with the Gulf is not the country that I grew up in. I mean, we can trace this back in Kuwait to its cosmopolitan history, to its early history, because it was a port town. And as a port town, you know, it was open to trade. It was used to, it was very accustomed to people coming in from all over the world. And so that created in Kuwait a sensibility that was generally open. And as it was developing as a modern nation state in the 1950s, even before it had gained independence, it was very open to people coming into the country, helping to contribute. And it offered citizenship to these to these people who are coming in. And that's something we would never see today, for example. So, you know, that was the kind of Kuwait that I grew up in. And post-1991, after the invasion, after the liberation of Kuwait, I think that these um, this attitude started to change. Understandably, you know, after an invasion, you you know, it makes sense that the country, the the, the citizens feel threatened and close in on themselves a little bit. And yet I, I, f- I found that tendency to be extremely detrimental to the best things uh, about Kuwait and to the kind of Kuwait I grew up in. Post 9-11, this became even more problematic because you had a certain understandable response um, from the West in regards to the Middle East. But then, of course, when I d- you know people feel threatened or they feel that they're, they're let's say, religion or sense of identity is being attacked, they cling to it all the more. And so we saw versions of extremism and conservatism about identity, about religion, that felt very unfamiliar to me, you know. And because of the sense of kind of my own sense of dislocation and feeling disoriented, um, again, that's why I sort of turned to writing these stories as a way to remember. And you went back to Kuwait when? I returned to Kuwait in 1976. I was six years old. I went to an American school in Kuwait. My mother it really believed in the American system of education, so she insisted that her girls would go to the American school, and we did. And this was kind of rare at the time. Um, it isn't very rare now, but at the time it was for, for kids who both their parents are Kuwaiti, especially girls. So in any case, um, I went to an American school there, and I uh, graduated from you know, high school in Kuwait and went to Kuwait University. I got a degree in English literature. Um, and so after that, I, I went to the United States to complete my education, get my MA and my PhD. And then you came back to Kuwait to teach. And then I returned back to Kuwait to teach at Kuwait University. I started teaching at Kuwait University in 2004. And when you came back, is that when you noticed the difference yes. in the societies? Yes, exactly. You know, I think I had been away for an, a, you know, an important period when this, you know, the changes were would have been happening, and I would come back and visit all the time. But you know, you don't really notice the changes. But when once I came back and started working, you know, I really did feel that things had changed really dramatically. And what kind of surprised me too is that it felt like everybody around me didn't remember the Kuwait that I still felt very close to and it felt really familiar to me, maybe because the changes were more gradual for people who hadn't left. But for those of us who left 
or would leave and come back, the changes seem dramatic and, and startling and disturbing. So, okay, coming, I think this is a good time to come back to the book because I feel like when I read your stories, I felt like I was jumping into a memory or some kind of moment in time where a characters were reflecting on things that were happening around them that were bigger than them. And they're very rich. I mean, you really just get sucked into the story. The book is called The Hidden Light of Objects, and each story has an object as a central kind of theme. Tell me why you chose to, to do that. So the one of the things about these stories, I'll come back to that question, but one of the things about the stories is that they're connected. They're very loosely connected, and they're connected through something, sometimes it's really subtle, the repetition of a word, a certain tone. Other times it's more obvious, the character reappears, or it could be about place and location that, that connects it. But the other thing that connects it is a series of vignettes told in the first person. There's a little short vignette that precedes each of the stories, and it's linked indirectly and sometimes more directly to the preceding story. And it's narrated by the same character named Mina, and it's told in the first person. Mina recurs in a few of the stories as well. So that kind of creates a thread. The vignettes create a thread that link the stories together. And the vignettes kind of give a different perspective. They open up a little window onto the story that comes next. And it, you know, you kind of maybe go back and read the vignette and you find out something about the character that the story didn't tell you. So it was kind of playing with perspective a little bit. But another thing that holds the stories together is this trope or figure of objects that you've identified. So each of the stories kind of hinges on an encounter with a chance object that triggers a certain memory. So you're right to say that this the collection is very much about remembering. And I thought of the stories as these little experiments with memory. And so the idea about objects kids really know that objects hold this kind of magic, you know, and we I think we kind of tend to forget that as adults. But even as adults, if you encounter or come across an object that meant something to you when you were a kid or uh, an, an important object that maybe your grandfather gave to you, you know, um, or even sometimes it, it may be even a trivial object, but it's one that you lived with for a long time. And when you come across that later in life and you kind of hold that in your in your hands, I feel that it, what I was interested to explore was how or why that object triggers certain memories or even just a sensation that reminds you of a time, it reminds you of a place, it reminds you of a sensibility that you may have forgotten about. For me, the objects were really key to, to, to that exploration. But it isn't just about kind of looking back to the past and lamenting the past, because that's dangerous to do. And I think it is, can be very counterproductive, you know, to kind of slip into nostalgia. So you're there, but there's not really much that can follow from there. But when you look to the past in the, in the way that I'm, I'm trying to do with these stories, it opens up a different view of the present. And in remembering those sensations, in remembering the experience of who you once were or who you once thought you might become, it, it prepares the conditions for a different kind of future and one that you thought is closed off forever. And I was interested in that, you know, those possibilities. So by writing this book, you kind of allowed your imagination to be a buffer between reality, the reality that you know now and the future. It's, it's kind of a way of opening it up. I would say that I don't know if there's enough you know, exercises by youth in the Middle East to imagine, to to really allow themselves through art to explore these things and and just and and let go of the the, the ugly realities that surround them. I, that is just so well put, and I think that that's so so true. I can't, you know, 
emphasize enough how important to me the experience uh, of of being able to kind of slip into it, the you know the imaginative world. My imaginative life was so important to me growing up, and I think in some ways in the Middle East we have the issues of you know, global politics and regional politics and the, the weight of this can impose itself on young people's lives in devastating ways, ways, you know, that, that it's impossible for them to fight um, those forces. And so it's, you know, it, it, they may be trying desperately to be able to slip into the imaginative world, but are not able to do it because of those material realities. On the other hand, I think maybe the world in general that we're living in leaves little space for the imagination. Everything seems codified. Everything seems almost um, taken over. Our free time is taken over by, you know, digital, the digital life that, that we're, we all are kind of a part of. And I think for young people, this can be very dangerous and doesn't give them the space that they need to imagine. And if you don't have that, I think you, you forget about if you can't imagine alternatives different futures, you know, then there's a real danger that you end up feeling stuck in the present. And I think that's something, you know, it's a skill, it's a, it's a joy, a pleasure that you learn when you're young, when you, when you have that time. And I, I really hope that that's not something that is disappearing from us. Let's go away from the world of imagination for a second and talk about some of your experiences coming back to Kuwait as a woman, maybe so, I mean, in Kuwait, I think often Kuwait gets conflated with other countries that are nearby. Kuwait, you know, life for women in Kuwait is not the way that life for women is in a place like Saudi Arabia, for example. You know, it's never been an issue for women, for example, the question of driving or working or education or any of that. And the law doesn't impose um, a code of dress on women. You can wear more or less whatever you want. You know, there are certain traditional expectations, but if you want to break them, you can. You know, you will not be arrested or, you know, there's none of that kind of um, pressure on women in Kuwait. So I never felt growing up that there was anything that I as a woman or as a young girl could not do. I never felt that as a pressure, you know, as a as a kind of limit or barrier. And and the examples that I had of women around me, my mother, my grandmothers, friends, people that that I saw uh, doing the kinds of things that they wanted to do in work, in education, in living their everyday lives, certainly presented a model of what it meant to be um, a woman living in the Middle East, which is you can do more or less whatever you want. So that is the way that I saw it. When I returned back to Kuwait, it wasn't, again, that anything had changed legally, but it felt more like there was a, f a family, not my family, but I could see around me, I could see it in my students, for example, that there seemed to be a kind of pressure or an atmosphere of conservatism that, of course, in general, conservatism seems to fall on the shoulders of women. Uh, and, you know, it is always generally imposed on women and their lives and what they can and cannot do. And those restrictions I could see, and I could see them in my students who had to, you know, face these limits that I didn't have to face. Um, I, I know that I'm lucky I came from a very supportive family. But I mean, in general, I, you know, I, I think that this was an experience, my experience is, was not so unique. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was generational. And that I saw change. 
Yes, actually, that reminds me of my mother. She's Jordanian, and she was grew up in Jordan in the seventies. And she showed me the yearbook. She's like, "Look, Linda, like there's not there's only one girl with a hijab or a veil here. Not not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but that the vast difference that if you look at a yearbook today, there may be one person without the veil." which is really just an indicator of the increasing conservatism that is emerging in societies in the Middle East. I think for many of us, there is a before and an after the war, which is to say the 1990-1991. And after 1991, I think for many reasons, a complex range of reasons, it, there was a turn towards a more conservative way of life. And in part, this could be influenced from Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia was a strong supporter of Kuwait during the invasion, and so then its influence was felt more strongly after the liberation of Kuwait. It wasn't felt as strongly before. And so I think that that had something to do with it as well. And I think that the the rise of, of this kind of tendency in the region as a whole certainly affected Kuwait as well. to actually return to the stories, I noticed that the ages of your characters grow throughout the book. So you start with a very young girl and you end with an older person. Why did you do that? Yeah, so I did think very carefully about the order of these stories. And I, I it's funny, when I started writing them, I didn't realize that they would be part of a collection. But by about the third story, I realized that they were going to be connected. I stopped sending, you know, trying to send them out to journals and get, because I just, I felt like this book was going to work together as a collection. You can read the stories by themselves and they'll make sense. But as you said, you notice one of the things that happens um, by ordering them in the way that I did. It does start with a very young um, the experience of a young narrator, although she's looking back, but nonetheless, it starts with the experience of, of a very young girl. And it does kind of move in a, a chronological way towards an, an older woman, an older family, uh, or a woman that's that has an older uh, family. And I think p part of that was as a way to give the collection structure. It's, it's certainly not um, a plot-driven collection or the stories are not plot driven, I would say. Maybe there are a few that are. Um, but there, the, the tension that holds the collection together is these kind of subtle, you know, subtle connections, subtle links, subtle ways of forming the piece as a whole. And so I think that that was one way to do it. You And your female characters, and even your male characters, seem to push boundaries and challenge taboos. Has your book been widely read by an Arab audience? How was it received by your Arab audiences versus your Western? I know it just came out in the U.S., but can you talk more about that? I, it's funny. I would say that it, it's been very similar, and I'm very, I'm really happy about that because the the concentration isn't on. I think in some ways it's very easy to to kind of look at cultural output from the Middle East and say, wow, this is really challenging because it's breaking those taboos. But in fact, taboos are broken all the time everywhere. And in the Middle East, it's often not as big a deal as we think. And in fact, the taboos that are broken are the 
are so predictable. You know, the ones that get a lot of attention, they're the ones that are the most predictable and uninteresting to me. You know, that that kind of seems like a really, um, you know, something that, that is is kind of maybe more interesting in the West or to a Western audience than than elsewhere. But, but what I've been really happy about is that the responses that I've gotten both in the Middle East itself, in Kuwait and beyond, and then outside in Europe, and because it was released in the UK ahead of the US, is that pe- what people focus on is the human stories, you know, that this, it, a lot of the stories deal with everyday, ordinary life of characters, of young people, of people struggling with loss, with disease, with um, things like um, depression, or, you know, just the, the, the excitement of growing up, being an adolescent, falling in love. And those are the kinds of things that people seem to relate to. I mean, yes, it deals with the effects of the uh, civil war in Lebanon. It deals with the invasion of Kuwait. It deals with the effects of the war in Iraq, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It covers a lot of the political events that we're familiar with in the region, but that's not the the, the main focus. It, in so, sometimes the characters are trying to outrun those events and they're unable to, and they become a victim perhaps. Other times they, as you, you kind of said, that they seem to escape some of that or they, they push away, they resist against certain expectations in order to carve out for themselves the, the everyday life that they want and deserve. So I think it's a good point for you to maybe read a passage. Um, why don't you give us a little background first and then read us a passage. Sure. So I'm going to read a section, a passage from a a story called The Echo Twins. The Echo Twins is set in Kuwait in the 1930s, um, although it's being remembered by the two twins, Mishal and Mishari, in the 1950s. And it deals with this young, this small family, um, the mother, Mama Hayat, and her sons. And it, there's a mystery at the heart of the story, which I won't get into here. But uh, what the passage I'm going to read, the mother has just passed away. And uh, the 18-year-olds are kind of dealing with, with her death. So the Echo Twins. Mama Hayat stopped breathing in the early evening. Around the hour, the sun turns the sky above the horizon, the color of a bruise. The twins, hovering over their mother's declining body for days, tabulating the signs of her approaching end in the slightest twitches of her fingers and toes, noticed the instant her chest sank and failed to rise again. The young men gulped air twice in quick succession. The first gulp, understandably, expressed shock. While they knew their mother had been battling something these last few months, they had never allowed themselves to think that whatever she had might kill her. The second gulp, however, was irregular. Had anyone else been in the room to hear it, they might have considered it indelicate, possibly conspiratorial. Together with the rapid glances fired between the twin pairs of glinting black eyes, the second gulp could have been interpreted as joy. That would have been a mistake. Eighteen-year-olds Michelle and Mishari adored their mother. They were not happy to see her dead. They were devastated, and soon enough would begin to feel as if their skin were being pulled off slowly, lemon and salt rubbed into their exposed flesh, the feeling of losing a mother. But there was a secret hidden beneath the ribs of their family. 
and their twin hearts beat wildly with excitement because they realized the age of vagueness was over. That second gulp was an acknowledgment between brothers that the years of living under the shadow of a mystery, a childhood of unanswered questions, nearly two decades of stories impossible to pin in place, were done. The golden age of certainty, what they craved more than any other thing, even more than a father, would dawn. They believed, as they had been led to believe by Mama Hayat herself, that their mother's death would bring with it disclosure. The family secret would be revealed. So that should be a nice taster, a little teaser for our listeners who I really highly recommend get this book. It's a unique and original collection of stories. And I wanted to ask you, it is so original and unique. Who were your literary inspirations? Do you do you have inspirations from both the West and the East? Who, who were your favorites? So... The modernist European writers have been hugely important to me. People like Virginia Woolf, Proust, who's, you know, I, I quote in the book, um, Proust was very important in my thinking about this collection. But, you know, writers like Virginia Woolf and Gertrude Stein, Samuel Beckett, you know, these writers who experiment with form have always been important to me. From the Middle East, writers like Asya Jabbar, who sadly recently passed away, the great Algerian writer, has been incredibly important to my thinking about how to approach certain questions, you know, and, and just she's just such an amazing writer. So she's always there in my sense of, you know, literature. Hassan Kanafani is a, a great writer that I came to much later, actually, but has become incredibly important to me. Um, and I could just go on and on, but those are just a few. <laughs> so as someone who tackles political and social issues in the Middle East, how do you reconcile critiquing the Arab world without reinforcing negative Western stereotypes in the region? Do you kind of keep that question in mind when you're writing? Or I think because i I feel myself positioned between things. I don't like to feel myself planted in either one place or another. You know, I like that feeling of kind of being in between or kind of hovering. And I think when you do that, it keeps you honest. So you, I don't feel, I don't, you don't want to kind of self-censor in the sense that if you see something that's going on that you find to be troubling, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a motivation and a kind of ethical uh, aspect to the need for, for a critic to, to engage that and write about it as honestly as possible, even if it presents a reinforcement of an image that you don't that you know, you you're worried that the West kind of stereotypes. So there is that and you you keep that in mind, but not to the extent that it will affect what you what you say about, you know, the, the region, you know, I think that that's uh, a problem if you were to do that. But, you know, I think that it's a question of um, being critically astute, and being critically honest and engaging the work that you do with the ethical stance of wanting it to be better. What about the experience of the Levant? You write about Lebanon and Palestine. How do you see the the differences between the Gulf and the, the Levant? Yeah, I mean, I I have, of course, I've I've traveled to to different places, and and my grandmother was Lebanese. My father has links to um, Basra, you know. So there there is a connection, you know. There's a a connect, personal connection to me in these places, but. Also, in, with regards to Kuwait, when Kuwait was developing, and I, I do think Kuwait is connected to these places, um, Kuwait 
in the 1940s, uh, the start of um, the Palestinian community that that was so key and central to Kuwait, you know, began. I mean, you could even say in the 30s, but especially by 1948. And the Palestinian community in Kuwait was a very important component in terms of its development, in terms of its community, all of that. And and we know, you know, that the unfortunate um, outcome of of certain circumstances post-1991. Uh, Nonetheless, because this vibrant, dynamic, integrated community was such a part of, of Kuwait uh, for such a long time, I think that it, it made it quite exceptional in terms of its relationship to the Levant. And then in terms of, you know, for Lebanon in particular, Kuwait, uh, the, Kuwait had a really close connection in many different ways politically, but also in the 1960s, Kuwaitis would go back and forth between Kuwait and Lebanon, and it was the place that they would visit and, and vacation and study. And so I think that you had a you had a great intellectual kind of uh, back and forth between various countries and Kuwait too. We well, you know, that that a lot of the best of the best would come to Kuwait and work, you know, in in from newspapers to the university itself to to certain journals, Al Arabi Journal, and that made the the link I think stronger. And and I think there is an important relationship between Kuwait and the Levant. What do you think the Middle East needs most right now? If you could say one thing. One thing, one word, education. I honestly think that, you know, we can talk about economic issues. We can talk about war. We can talk about conflict and all of these urgent, urgent concerns. And they're, they are urgent concerns. But for me, as somebody who works in education, I truly believe that if we were to tackle, seriously tackle um, the, the system of, you know, the government education system all over the Middle East without exception and radically transform that and really make it an incredibly powerful, thorough, uh, critical uh, institution, things would change in a few gen- in a generation. And quickly, what are those issues with the current education system? I can't speak for the entire region, but I know that in Kuwait, we've become a much more, I would say, conservative, more religiously inflected uh, system, curriculum. And I think that we don't value teaching kids to think critically. We don't value reading as much as we should. And I think that these are skills that kids take away with them and that they need them, you know, to be capable, thoughtful uh, citizens in the world, active citizens in the world, they need to learn these skills young. And I think that that's missing. So a, re- a rigorous education in critical thinking and also kind of um, civic, a civic education is something that's important. And exposure, exposure to what's going on in the rest of the world, but also the literature, the culture of the rest of the world. And to kind of cultivate in, in young kids in the region, the love of reading seems really important to me. So I think that's my quick kind of um, solution to, to, I, I, to something I believe would help. Would you say there's a lack of reading culture in the Middle East? Yes and no. I mean, I think people are still reading, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure how, how in-depth the, the reading goes. So in some ways, reading is dramatically increased with things like the internet and kids are really savvy and they're completely engaged with social networking and they're reading articles and they they have access to every kind of 
piece of information that's that's out there. And that's all great. But I think, and this is perhaps a global issue, not just relevant to the Middle East, I'm not sure if the skills that they're learning by reading on the internet and, and you know, through their social networks are giving them the capacity to focus as much on books, you know, on, you know, a poem. It takes real focus to be able to read a poem carefully and thoughtfully, a novel. And my sense is that that kind of speed of the internet is erasing the slowness and the kind of attentiveness that you need to engage. And the reason that worries me is because I think that you need that slowness and attentiveness to be able to think critically. I feel like the the speed that with which they are engaging this other form of reading or these other kinds of reading is taking that capacity, is depleting that capacity. And I'm, that worries me a little bit. And that sounds like kind of what we were talking about uh, earlier in that as a result, it is difficult for young people and even adults to delve into the imaginative world to escape from the realities around them and which are very healthy ways of dealing with such you know traumatic experiences. So last question, what is next for you and what are you trying to tackle now? So I'm working on a novel at the moment. I'm not going to say too much about it, but I'm I'm very excited to shift from writing. I started writing the short stories thinking that they would be a good preparation for the novel, but the short stories are incredibly difficult as a form in their own way and very precise, in some ways very unforgiving. And I love the, the short story as a form. But I, at the moment, I'm working on a novel, and I'm I'm really excited to work in this form. It's really a kind of looser, in some ways, more imperfect form. And I enjoy that aspect of it. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you very much. The book is called The Hidden Light of Objects. And the author, May Al-Nakib, joined us in studio today. Good luck with all of your endeavors. And we look forward to your new book. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song, as always, is by Muqata. The track is called Ahyat. You can follow him on soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. And you can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. And please follow our social media sites. We've got a Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash podcast and Twitter at arabiyat. Please like and share and engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. 